Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. On this week's Current Account, I want to take a closer look at Argentina's presidential elections. And to help us make sense of it all, I'm delighted to welcome Kezia McKaig, who's the Regional Director for Latin America at McClarty Associates. And she has been working on Latin America for a number of years, including with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the Council of the Americas, and she's got her graduate degree in Argentina. Kezia, thanks very much for joining us, and it, of course, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. So now, Argentina had an election a couple of weeks ago, but we don't have a president yet. There's going to be a runoff election. Maybe you can explain a little bit about all that, but also maybe go a little further, which is provide a little context about the Argentine elections, what's happening in the economy, what's happening in Argentina right now. And I, I know that's a lot, but I think it's the best way to like kind of lead us into kind of what's the election really about. On November 19, as you said, two candidates will compete in Argentina's runoff election to determine the next president of Latin America's third largest economy. Even by Argentina's standards of very volatile politics, this has been an election cycle with many plot twists and surprises along the way. The two candidates who will be competing are Sergio Massa, the sitting minister of economy, and Javier Milei, who has received a lot of international attention because he's such a quirky, eccentric candidate, a far-right libertarian who has railed against the political establishment and really taken the country by surprise this year. I'll talk about who each of these candidates is and, and why they, they got to the runoff. But first, a note about just the very important economic context. The country is unfortunately in its worst economic crisis in more than two decades. Inflation is at 138% per the most recent data in September. The uh, central bank reserves are dangerously low. As foreign investors that I work with know, there are so many macroeconomic distortions that dominate the economy, from draconian currency controls to import restrictions, and poverty levels are more than 40%. So obviously, this was an election about the economy. Many assumed that it would be an election about change, as we've seen in other Latin American countries with high anti-incumbent sentiment. We thought this election would be represent a shift to the right. Indeed, all of the three major candidates in the first round of the election, October 22nd, went from the center to the far right. But in, at the end of the day, we may actually see continuity with the current governing coalition. So who is first uh, Massa, the current minister of finance, who is an astute politician. He's run a very professional campaign. You would need to. He gets a lot of credit uh, because he obviously has a difficult economic record to defend. He took office in August of last year. And this needs a little bit of background on the current government for those who have followed it. We have a deeply unpopular president, Alberto Fernandez, who chose not to run for re-election, not surprisingly. A vice president who handpicked him to run for office in 2019, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Similarly, Weekend and Kirchnerismo, while never dead, is quite discredited after four years of economic mismanagement. Massa came into office at a time when the government was, was very paralyzed. I mean, it had badly mishandled the pandemic. 
dominated by factions in this very diverse governing coalition that couldn't get along, those loyal to the president, those loyal to the vice president. Massa was the third and more junior coalition partner, and he came at the beginning of the administration, was the president of the lower house. He came in, not an economist, a career politician, trained as a lawyer, but as a sort of what was called a super minister, actually uniting three different ministries to become a super minister of economy. And his goal was really to use this as a launch pad for the presidency. He's never been shy about his presidential ambitions. And his hope was almost like a Cardozo in Brazil, tame inflation, be seen as the savior of the Argentine economy, use that as a platform to run for president. Ironically, inflation got much worse over the last year and a half, but he ran for president all the same. Uh, and he was certainly benefited by more than anything, a split in the opposition vote, the anti-Peronist vote between the Junta por el Cambio, sort of traditional center-right coalition, and Javier Milei, who I'll get to. But, but Massa, he has not used his power. He, I mean, in some ways, he's been much more powerful than the president almost a de facto president over the last year and a half. He has not used his power to really realize any kind of radical shifts in Argentine economic policy. He's considered a very much a pragmatist and, and much more of a centrist. He was clearly the most competitive candidate the Peronists could have offered. However, he's, he's really affected kind of a muddle-through policy as Minister of Economy. That muddle-through policy was made more difficult admittedly by a severe drought that affected Argentina's agricultural exports and main source of foreign revenue in 2023. But he, in many ways, continued interventionist policies that made life quite difficult for a lot of foreign companies that I work with operating in Argentina, from price controls to import restrictions to the multiple exchange rates that exist, kind of a mind-boggling labyrinth of foreign exchange restrictions, companies in diverse sectors that deal with the, the problem of trapped pesos, given that you can't repatriate profits, etc. What you can't say for Massa is that he is accessible to the private sector. He's really cultivated very close relationships with Washington. He's probably the most pro-U.S. Peronist in his coalition. And he's certainly, like I said, a, a real pragmatist. Argentines consider him to be somewhat of a chameleon, in fact, shifting political allegiances, sometimes a flip-flopper. So sometimes there are those who, who certainly don't trust him, but he's a clever politician and he has very much distanced himself in this campaign from the government that he serves with. Um, he's a weird incumbent. He's a candidate in a country with very high anti-incumbent sentiment, but he's criticized the government that he has joined, distanced himself from both the president and the vice president, and he has promised different kinds of policies as president. There are different interpretations about what he might do as president with greater political power. Would he make a definitive break with Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, for example? Would he be a reformer or would he represent more of the same? Okay, Kezia. So Sergio Massa. It is interesting. I, I agree with you, which is, you know, he's the finance minister. He's sitting on 130% inflation, un, a bad unemployment, tough economic times, and the guy finished first in the first round of the elections. All right. He's got a case to make, obviously, where he's basically saying, I'm going to be a little bit different than the people I've been doing stuff with. And I'm sure he also is going to point at the other guy and say that this guy is kind of scary. So who is the other guy? And is he scary? Great question. Millet is 
a maverick. He's an outsider. He is somebody who's railed against the political establishment. He's even wielded chainsaws at campaign rallies to show that he's serious about cutting government spending. He's a libertarian in a country known for a political movement that prioritizes the state, Peronism. So he's very much a new thing in Argentine politics. He gained notoriety actually as a TV personality and then ran for Congress. He's a one-term congressman. He does not have significant political experience, administrative experience. He's a trained economist. And a lot of the international media attention to him has been about everything from his haircut, his sideburns, to his clone dogs named after conservative American economists. <laughs> um, so he's, he's an eccentric candidate, no doubt. I think he's been this successful really because of this message about the casta or the political caste that has so disappointed many Argentines who are fed up with economic turmoil with both of the dominant coalitions in Argentine politics that many see as having failed to address Argentina's economic problems, both under the former president, Mauricio Macri, and then in the last government, we've talked about the economic mismanagement that has characterized this administration. So Millet, I mean, we do know a lot about his voters, too. I mean, he's become very popular among young voters, in particular young males. However, it does not have much of a partisan structure or even a significantly large team. His very personalistic party, La Libertad Avanza, or Liberty Advances, fared very poorly, in fact, in provincial elections. He has no governorships. He would have not significant support in Congress. It will be a divided Congress. And the concern, particularly from a foreign investor perspective, is despite his very radical free market policies, pro-business stances, would he actually be able to not only implement his agenda, but, but govern? This could be a very weak government. Would he be able to deal with likely union pushback, social unrest? Historically, that's been quite an issue. And frankly, Peronists have controlled the street sometimes much more effectively. His policies we can talk about, the most well-known one is dollarization. That's been very criticized by mainstream economists in Argentina as impossible to implement. Very ambitious in terms of cutting government ministries, drastically cutting the, the, just the size of the state, government spending, in a, an economy in which the Achilles heel has really been the fiscal deficit, spending more than Argentina has. And so his chainsaw has been a very effective symbol of what he would do in government. And and more than anything, he's really leveraged very effectively high voter dissatisfaction with the economic turmoil of the last few years in Argentina. He started to just get a lot more hype before the August primary, which really functions more like a national poll, almost like a test election than anything else is an open primary. He surpassed all expectations and finished first, and that gave him a great deal of momentum going into the first round of the election on October 22nd. In fact, a lot of international media from The Economist, The Financial Times, called him the front runner. And of course, as we talked about, Massa in the end pulled off a surprising first place finish. But I still think this will be a very tight election between the two on November 19. I think Massa's strong showing has a lot to do with, as I said, the split in the anti-Peronist vote. The third place finish, of course, was went to Patricia Bullrich of the Junta para Gambia coalition. But it also has to do with how Massa first leveraged the 
Peronist capacity to mobilize the electorate that you can never underestimate, as well as the resources of his office. He went on quite a spending spree before the election. Argentine press estimated that his cash handouts and tax breaks amounted to about 1.5% of GDP, which is a significant amount. And he also very effectively, I think, fomented fears of what Millet's more radical policies could mean for the pocketbook of the average Argentine, many of whom, frankly, depend on the state. One interesting comparison made in a lot of headlines in the Argentine press was about the idea of fear versus anger, that anger explained the result in August, in which Millet came out first very narrowly in a three-horse race, and then fear explained Massa's showing in October. So that's a, I mean, I think that's a really good way of framing it. Fear versus anger. Okay. So the fear, which I assume is Moss's, the current finance ministers, the fear of the unknown, of this kind of radical person, libertarian, who's running around with a chainsaw and a weird haircut and some crazy dogs, I guess. And then the rage of look what you've done to our country and we just got to go a different way, which would be Malay's argument. All right. Now they have to come up with some economic policies and I know you work with investors. And so let's kind of maybe combine the two things, which is, all right, the investors that you work with, they want to think about Argentina, what to do in 2024. I assume right now they're pretty uncertain about what to do and uncertainty is not a good thing for investors. So you could see two different, pretty radically different policies. The Sergio Massa wing, which is, as you said, is Peronista, state-run economy as best as possible. Maybe you can play that one out. But at the same time, or secondly, is Malay wins. He finds a way through. He incorporates some coalition or something. And he obviously has talked about dollarization, whether or not it's possible or not. He's talked about it. I assume he's doing that because he's trying to say, we got to get inflation under control and the central bank is not working. And so a way of getting rid of the central bank is to dollarize the economy like our neighbor Ecuador did 20 years ago. Okay. So maybe you can play out his policy a little bit and just kind of how investors see both parties. Sure. You know, there's a lot made of the unpredictability of Millet. He's a wild card. He's a populist. Comparisons made to both Trump and Bolsonaro, though, frankly, Trump had much more partisan structure and Bolsonaro a lot more experience in politics. Millet is more of an unknown quantity. I would argue, however, that Massa is also in some ways unpredictable from a foreign investor perspective. As I mentioned, there are different interpretations about what kind of Massa we would see as president. There's one school of thought that he would definitively break with the Kirchnerista faction of his coalition, that he would be almost like a Carlos Menem in terms of implementing the structural reforms that Argentina really needs. He's a consummate deal maker. He knows, he's a very experienced career politician and he knows Congress very well. Peronism will have the largest block in the lower house, but he'll still need to work across the aisle. In his victory night speech on October 22nd, he promised a national unity government, making a direct pitch, for example, to the radical party, which is a more social democratic member of the center-right coalition. He's, of course, competing for those votes, and much of what will happen on November 19 will depend on, on those 6 million voters that went to Patricia Bullrich. 
So could Massa actually be the reformist Peronist and actually, you know, control the street at the same time that he affects ambitious fiscal adjustment? He said in the presidential debate, while giving very little detail about any kind of economic plan, frankly, he has said that he would seek a fiscal surplus in 2024 and has talked about the importance of cutting Argentina's fiscal deficit, which, of course, is responsible for the money printing that has caused the inflationary problem. At the same time, the recent measures that have helped him politically that I just alluded to makes that even more difficult. So there are a lot of question marks about Massa. You know, we could see simply more of the same, perhaps some sectoral exceptions for the strategic sectors that he likes to talk about. He's very focused on attracting investment to Argentina's energy and mining sectors, for example which of course have a lot of potential if Argentina can get its macroeconomic house in order. But are we likely to see continuation of capital controls, price controls, et cetera? Yes, I think absolutely, at least in the short term. And lifting the very complex foreign exchange restrictions is not an easy task and will require short-term political costs given the pass-through effect on prices. And so he's tried to avoid, of course, a devaluation before the election. So a lot of question marks about what kind of Massa we would see as president. Unfortunately, he also hasn't given any indication as to who would be part of his cabinet. There are some rumors about the appointment of a market-friendly first minister of economy, but we don't know at the end of the day who his minister of economy might be. So unpredictable there in terms of an economic plan. Millet has been very, as I've said, ambitious in his economic policies. I think it's a misreading of this election to say that that necessarily means some kind of ideological shift in the Argentine population in favor of free market uh, (laughs) reforms. He, I think, is where he is today, thanks to more of that anti-establishment message and, and the disillusionment and anger with the established coalitions. So people who want some kind of change are voting for him. He's promised also massive privatizations, including Argentina's state-run energy company, YPF. Dollarization, as I said, and abolishing the central bank are his most notorious policies, but unlikely to actually happen anytime soon, especially since he would need congressional support. From an investor perspective, he is, again, a wild card promising change, but to what extent can he govern effectively? Much of that will depend on how he works with Argentina's former president, Mauricio Macri. We haven't talked that much about the coalition that ended third in this first round of the election, uh, a very disappointing result, given that it was once the heavy favorite to win the presidency this year, and that's now experiencing huge internal tensions and and fragmentation, frankly. There's a more conservative wing of the coalition led by the candidate in this election, Patricia Bullrich, and her mentor, the former president, Mauricio Macri, who have endorsed Millet in their personal capacity. On the other hand, there are other pro-leaders. Pro is the party created by Mauricio Macri, like the current mayor of Buenos Aires, Horacio Rodriguez Larreta, who is also a candidate in this election who said they are neutral in this race, then the radicals are frankly probably leaning more towards Massa, even though they are officially neutral. Any expression of neutrality is actually in some ways very helpful to Massa and and tacitly supporting him. 
Those votes will likely be split between the two candidates. If Millet were to win, Macri's support would be, I think, essential in to how he governs. And we would likely see Junta por el Cambio economists, those who served in the Macri administration back in office. Clearly, there are thousands of political appointments to be made, and Millet has a very small team. I've met with some of them over the last few months, but uh, there would be many more positions he would need to fill. So those signals soon after November 19 will be very important from a foreign investor perspective, those personnel appointments to see what direction either of them would go. So thank you. In many respects, I mean, obviously there will be an election on November 19. Somebody's going to win. But I think you make a really good point, which is in some respects, you have two wild cards, even though one of them is an incumbent and one of them is a radical anti-incumbent. Some of the economic policies are not that well formed out. This doesn't sound like it's necessarily, I mean, it's worse than the United States. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's really necessarily an election about ideas and what should the policies be. Malay clearly has some ideas, even if some of them are sound a little bit half-baked. But it's interesting that we could end up with a wild card situation. Let me transition a little bit to looking at other parts of Latin America. It, it is kind of a wild card situation. So, all right, some of the neighbors of Argentina include Ecuador, which just elected a very young pro-business president. Colombia, which last year elected a fairly left-wing, I guess, president just basically had kind of a anti-incumbent regional and local elections. And then, of course, we have a big election next year, 2024, in Mexico, where, again, we have a fairly left-wing politician who has actually been fairly successful, I think, it's fair to say. Maybe you can kind of just talk a little bit in general about the overall electoral process kind of maybe fitting Argentina in there or, or just saying Argentina is just a one-off thing and you got to look at all of these different countries, country by country. Yeah, I think Argentina is a little sui generis for a lot of reasons, but the Ecuador election, for example, does demonstrate some trends we do see across the region, primarily, fortunately, because Ecuador has seen a dramatic increase in crime the importance of security to that campaign. As you said, a very young president-elect, only 35 years old, on a pro-business platform, Dania Novoa, defeated the ally of Correa in this election. It's a short term because there'll be elections again in May of 2025, since he was taking over for Lasso. But We've seen, an, unfortunately, a tragic increase in political violence even in the country. The campaign was marred by the assassination of a prominent candidate. And so that, unfortunately, is, is a trend we see across the region, just concerns about violence and, and polarization that has really marred this electoral cycle in Ecuador. As you say, in Colombia, well, Colombia just had local elections across the country that were seen really as a referendum on President Petro who is Colombia's first truly left-wing president in its history. And the elections didn't go well for him in major cities across the country. Um, so one year into his tenure, his public approval ratings are, I think, around 30%. And we'll see the degree to which the winners of that election, those local elections, are willing to work alongside Petro. But it shows a real dissatisfaction in Colombia with the current administration. And then in Mexico, a very significant election, of course. Mexico is, is the region's second largest economy. And 
Mexico's constitution bars re-election for the current president, López Obrador, who has had a very uneasy relationship with the private sector. My colleagues who work on Mexico can attest to this, but is still very popular. And his mentee is seen as the front runner in next year's election, June of next year, former mayor of Mexico City. Uh, we actually have two women now competing to be Mexico's president, which is exciting. She's running against a candidate from a coalition of opposition parties who are going up against Morena Lopez Obrador's party. Um, and at this point, polls show that Claudia Scheinbaum, who is very close to AMLO, would very comfortably win the election if today. But her opponent, Senator Galvez, we'll see. I, she thinks she has a lot of room to grow, potentially. And there are many issues that remain on the agenda that have played to the AMLO administration, you know, unaddressed issues like stability of public finances, security, low economic growth. So very large elections next year in Mexico, of course, with tremendous implications for the U.S., given the interdependence of the North American economy. And so we'll see. I think that's also its own story. But if we have a President Massa in Argentina, I think potentially could would work very well with a continuation of a Morena administration in Mexico. That said, Massa is, as I said, very, very pro-U.S. and it will have a different kind of foreign policy from the current Federalist administration, too. We'll be very close to Brazil's Lula as well, I should say. All right, Kizi, no, thank you very much. And thanks for, I mean, very briefly uh, hitting on some of the other big Latin American countries and obviously trying to pay attention to as many of them as possible. I guess I would be remiss if I didn't say my last question, which is, all right, let's go back to Argentina real quick. Who do you think is going to win? I think it's impossible to have a crystal ball when it comes to Argentine politics. I really thought Junto por el Cambio would be the victor in this administration. They finished a painful third place. So <laughs> um, one thing we have seen in this election is two trends. Like in the rest of the world, it's hard to trust polls. And second, never underestimate Peronism in Argentine politics. Clearly, Massa has more political momentum going into this election. But just as Millet was a bit oversold following the primary, I think he may be underestimated going into November 19. Massa is trying to make this election less about the economy. He has a tough record to defend and more about actually democracy, big questions like continuation of Argentina's 40 years of democracy, painting Millet as an authoritarian, as emotionally unfit for office. Admittedly, Millet is a very emotional candidate. So for him to win over the votes that went to the more rational center-right politician, Patricio Bullrich, he really needs to show her voters that he can moderate, that he is fit for office. There have been so many question marks about that. If he does that, obviously he's a less disciplined campaigner than Massa. If he does that, I think he has a very good chance of narrowly winning this election. But that's a big question mark. The next two weeks will be really key. So it's a day at a time right now in Argentine politics. And even the economic scenario in the short term is very fragile. So end of the day, I'm loath to make any predictions because I've been wrong before. And this has been a very unpredictable election cycle, given the depth of Argentina's economic problems. Suffice it to say that it will be a tight race. And whoever wins will face very dramatic challenges in terms of addressing Argentina's macroeconomic problems. Well, thank you very much, Kezia. And I really do appreciate you spending so much time with us on this 
very interesting election and on Latin America more generally. So thanks for being with us and I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. The three main takeaways. First is Argentina is in economic and political trouble. Things are volatile there. There's high inflation, unemployment's rapid, and the election process is still uncertain as we move towards the final round on November 19th. Next, I really liked Kezia's phrase of it's an election of fear versus rage. Fear of something very, very new, which is Javier Malay, and rage against the current kind of political machine, which is represented in some respects by Sergio Massa. But what she did say was that whoever of those two wins, both are wild cards in terms of how they will actually govern and how their economic policies will be. And third, at a broader level, I thought that Kezia made a good point about there's a concerning rise of not just partisanship, but violence in politics in a number of Latin American countries. And in sometimes it's anti-incumbent, but in sometimes it's pro-incumbent. And so we'll have to see this trend and hopefully it will dissipate. As for my two things I'm looking forward to, well, the first is the November 19th presidential election, second round election between the two candidates. And the second is the Mexican elections next year. As Kezia said, they're one of the most important in the world, particularly for the United States, but not just for the United States, for all of Latin America and actually the world itself. So I'm looking forward to those elections, which will be taking place in June of 2024. As for my one sports fact, we just finished up here in the United States, the World Series. For those that don't follow, that's the championship of Major League Baseball. The World Series is one of the biggest events there is in sports in the United States. And this year, it came down to two teams that were both surprises because they went into the playoffs with not that great of records. They were low seeds, but they made the playoffs. And then they made it all the way to the World Series. The Arizona Diamondbacks and the Texas Rangers. In the World Series itself, it was a good World Series, particularly for Texas, which won, and for their shortstop, a guy named Corey Sager, who became only the second person in the history of the World Series to win two World Series MVPs for two separate teams. He had won one a few years ago for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But maybe more exciting for the folks in Texas, they finally won the World Series. The Texas Rangers have existed technically since 1961. They moved to actually Texas in the 1970s, but they have gone all of that time, so 62 years without a World Series. In fact, they had the longest streak in baseball. The shortest time, I believe, for a team between becoming a team and actually winning the World Series was the Miami Marlins, who actually did it within four years. So 62 years is pretty darn long. So the next up on that is the San Diego Padres and the Milwaukee Brewers, neither of whom has ever won a World Series. Both of them have been to the World Series once, and both of them were inaugurated in 1969. So they are now on to 54 years without a World Series. I hope for each of the fans of those teams that soon they will actually do what the Texas Rangers were able to do, which is, as I say, get off the snide and actually win this thing. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show. 
as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. Again, I want to thank Kezia McKig for her very insightful comments today on Argentina. And all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.